Hello. <clears throat> We've started chanting. We've been uh, learning the Metta Sutta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta in the evenings, those of you who've been coming to the late sitting, which is the Discourse on Loving Kindness, as you know. And the word Karaniya in the title of it means uh, that which should be done, that which ought to be done. And I looked it up in the Pali Dictionary just for fun. It, it carries somewhat of a, a feeling of almost a sense of duty, which I think is interesting. But it points to the way that this um, is, a, is a teaching. It, it's a beautiful piece of poetry in a way. It certainly has that quality, but it's also really a practice. So I want to look into the, the words of the sutta a little bit later, but I thought I'd start the talk this evening uh, with the story of the, the history of the Metta Sutta and how it was originally taught uh, by the Buddha to a group of monks in India a long time ago now, almost 2,600 years ago when it was taught. And uh, I, I think I mentioned this, or, or one of the other, uh, Michelle or Rebecca may have mentioned that uh, the Metta Sutta is part of a group of, uh, of suttas and other teachings that are called Paritta chants, and the group of Paritta teachings. And the word Paritta usually is translated as blessing or protection. And Michelle was spoke really beautifully the other night about some of the different ways that this practice can be a protection for us. And it was originally taught as a kind of protection to a group of monks. So the story goes like this, that there was a large group of bhikkhus, Buddhist monks. In the story it says 500, which usually means many. And uh, they, the Buddha taught each of them to meditate, each according to his individual temperament, which was a good uh, a good uh, talent that the Buddha is said to have had to be able to tell what, what each person, what was the best practice for any, any given individual. So they learned meditation practices and they, he sent them off to find a place to spend the rains period, the vasa it's called in Pali, which is a period traditionally in the, in the rainy season in that part of the world. Uh, these days it's starts on the full moon of July and goes till the full, full moon of October usually. So it's a three lunar months, 12 week period. And monks and nuns are supposed to stay in one place at that time and not wander about. It tends to be a wandering tradition, but they're supposed to make a determination to stay in a single place for that period of time. I've heard it was, it was uh, the Buddha made the rule because it's the planting season and it was to keep them out of the rice paddies, but um, I don't know why they would have wandered through the rice paddies. It seems, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> it doesn't seem that likely, but, but the tradition carries on till today uh, for in Buddhist Asia, in the Theravada tradition. Uh, you stay in one place for that time. You can be away for six nights. You have to be back by dawn of the seventh day if you have to go away from where you've determined to stay. So they went to the Himalayas and they found this place that was really good. 
It was a forested area with big, beautiful, mature trees and old forest. There was a clear spring of fresh water for their drinking and bathing and a village nearby where they could go on alms round because to get food every day, the monks have to collect their, their food for the day by walking through the village and hoping people will put food in their bowl. They can't keep food overnight and uh, so their, their lives are very tied into uh, the lives of the lay people in the area. And the story says that the locals were happy, delighted to have the monks around and they even offered to build simple huts for them at the edge of the forest for the rains period. So they settled in there and each of the monks selected a tree to practice under. And this is a tradition of practicing at the roots of trees. And um, the story says that each of these trees was inhabited by a tree spirit, a tree deva. And uh, the Buddha spoke of a lot of realms of planes of existence, different realms. And I'm not asking anyone to believe in this or really to believe in anything at all except to maybe your own potential for awakening. So you can see this in a symbolic kind of way. Um, I think it's useful to keep the possibility open that maybe there are, there's more to things than meets the eye. Anyway, these trees were inhabited by tree devas and the trees were the, the foundations for their, their homes and their celestial mansions. And so the devas, uh, out of respect, they stood aside while the monks were meditating under their trees, thinking that it would be, they didn't want to hover over them and they thought it might just be for a day or maybe two. But the monks kept staying on and on day after day. So the devas um, were not happy. <laughs> they felt like, uh, you know, villagers whose homes had been commandeered by an occupying army or something. So they discussed the situation and they decided they should scare the monks away by showing them scary objects and visions and creating terrible sounds and awful smells. So um, they did that and it's said that the monks became pale and were unable to concentrate, that they soon lost even their basic mindfulness and their brains became smothered by these frightening visions and sounds and awful tragic smells. <laughs> so as often happens in some of these stories, they ran back to the Buddha to get his advice. And he taught them this Karaniya Metta Sutta then, the uh, same one we're chanting in the evenings. So they memorized the sutta and he said, go back, uh, practice, do the chanting and, and do the practice. So they returned to the forest, chanting the sutta and meditating on loving kindness, pervading the forest with thoughts of goodwill. And the devas were pleased. And they not only allowed the monks to stay, but they looked after them and made sure that the forest was calm and peaceful and quiet. And again, as is often the case, all 500 were fully enlightened by the end of the rains retreat. <laughs> Might, might happen here, keep, hold out the possibility. <laughs> so it's kind of a sweet story, but it points to uh, how it is a practice. The, uh, ch the chant, the sutta is, is a practice. 
It's also, metta is also one of the, what are called the ten paramis, or paramita in Sanskrit. And these are ten, uh, they're called the ten great perfections. They're ten beautiful, noble qualities of heart that uh, the Buddha is said to have perfected over countless lifetimes. And they're spoken of mainly in what are called the Jataka tales, which are stories, uh, they're like teaching fables uh, that have stories of different births, often as an animal, sometimes a deer or a, a bird or a, sometimes as a prince or all kinds of different things. And uh, the Buddha is said to have spent each one of these lifetimes perfecting one of these great uh, beautiful qualities. So it's things like generosity and sila, ethical conduct, energy and renunciation, patience. And metta is on that list as well. So it, it has this idea that one can perfect, cultivate and perfect these these beautiful qualities. And this points, I think, to a really important uh, truth that they, these kinds of qualities really can be cultivated, that our hearts and our minds are malleable in this way. They can be developed through practice and that where we place our hearts and minds really does matter and has a deep impact in our lives. I'd like to read a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya. It's one of the collections of the short suttas, numerical suttas, where the Buddha spoke very directly to this. It's one of the way he describes the path. He said, cultivate the good, O monks, speaking to the monks. One can cultivate the good. If it were not possible to cultivate the good, I would not ask you to do so. But as it can be done, therefore I say, cultivate the good. If this cultivation would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. So when we practice metta, that's what we're doing. We're cultivating this mind of benevolence, of friendliness, that seeks the well-being and happiness of all beings. It's this kind of generosity of heart. It's an offering in that way that connects to this universal wish that all beings have to be happy and to live at ease. The Dalai Lama takes this, this wish for happiness a, a step further. There's a quote I have from him I'd like to read. He said, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. In my own limited experience, I have found that the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease and helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and it gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the principal source of success in life. Since we are not solely material creatures, it is a mistake to place all our hopes for happiness on external development alone, 
The key is to develop inner peace. In the sutta, the Buddha likens uh, the quality of metta to a mother's love for her child. And this points to this quality of protection and this patience that's cultivated when we practice metta. As a mother, a good mother would forbear all difficulties and, and lay down her life for her child, for the sake of her child. So we extend metta to all beings in this way. And somewhere, I think it was in the Vasudhi Maga, probably, there's the image of a mother cow with her newborn calf that's used to, to show this kind of image of care of a mother for her child. And most of us probably don't see cows and calves around too much in our daily lives. It was probably more common at the time of the Buddha, unless we live on a farm. But I, was, I had an experience, a cow-calf experience, I'll tell you about. I was living in Upper Burma at the, uh, near the monastery where Michelle and Rebecca and I often go in the winter to uh, help with a retreat at a monastery there in the Sagaing Hills. And I was living as a monk at that time in a small monastery uh, back in the hills in a, in a cave, pretty nice cave, as caves go. Uh, <laughs> but a cave nevertheless. And I would walk down into the village of Wachet every day for alms food, for my meal. I was eating one meal a day from alms food. And uh, I, I followed the same route every day. And one time I came around the corner and there was a, a cow standing there tethered to a tree and she had a brand new calf. It was wobbly on its feet still and she was bathing it uh, giving it a bath, and it, it must have been a few hours old because it was just barely standing, still covered with the afterbirth from being born earlier in the morning, probably. And uh, it was this very poignant uh, image of this quality of a mother's love for her child at that time, especially, I think. There's a definition in the Visuddhi Magga that I find kind of interesting. It's a little, a sort of a technical quality, but there's some interesting stuff there. It says, loving kindness is characterized as promoting friendliness. Its function is to promote friendliness. It is manifested as the removal of ill will. Its proximate cause is seeing lovableness in beings and its footing is seeing with kindness. It succeeds when it causes ill will to subside and it fails when it produces selfish affection and desire. So that the idea of the proximate cause being this, this ability to see lovableness in beings, I think is quite lovely. And the footing foundation is seeing with kindness. In the Abhidhamma, this characteristic of promoting friendliness is stated very simply. It says, and how does one abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness extending over one direction? 
just as one would feel friendliness on seeing a dearly beloved person, so one extends loving kindness to all beings. It's a very simple and direct description of this quality of friendship. So I want to look at the actual words of the sutta now. And there's a few different translations. I like the one that we're using when we chant. If you want to look at it, you can, no need to. Uh, But some of you might have it there. There's a few different translations. I I like this one. It seems to capture the flavor of the sutta quite well, I think. And it's interesting because this this sutta has, um, in a way, there are three parts to it, although it's presented as a whole. There's no divisions. Uh, no, no actual divisions within it. But there are three distinct flavors that come through when we look at it. In the first section, there are specific qualities of heart that we possess to some extent and, then, and that we also are developing as a foundation for the cultivation of metta. And this sec- so this section in, in great part is about uh, the quality of sila, developing sila, ethical conduct. And it forms quite a, quite a large part of the sutta. And it, I think it really points to the degree that the, the emphasis that the Buddha placed on ethical conduct as a foundation for practice. And this is stressed throughout the teachings and the, the path of practice, whether we're doing metta or vipassana, sometimes it's seen the three parts of sila, samadhi, and panya, of ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom. Or dana, sila, bhavan is another way it's expressed, the practice of generosity, of ethical conduct, and of mind development. So in either way, sila is, is very um, seen as extremely important and it's stressed throughout the teachings, as I said. And I think sometimes we can tend to skip over this a little bit. You know, we want to get right to the, the meditation and the, the practices of mind development as though somehow that's the real thing. And even if we see that there's that our conduct and uh, following the precepts is important, that a life of care and non-harming is, is important, I think sometimes we take it a little bit for granted. And if when we come to a retreat like this, you know, we take the precepts at the beginning and we feel like, okay, we've got it in place now and we kind of put that aside and, and don't really bring our attention to that so much. But it really is this essential platform foundation upon which the whole practice rests and and it merits our attention on a regular basis. And there's a way in which it's constantly refined and developed in more and more subtle ways as our practice unfolds. Thich Nhat Hanh has has a really nice book called For a Future to be Possible and the whole book is about sila, about 
ethical conduct. And he calls these precepts that we take here on retreat and hopefully carry into our lives outside of retreat. He calls them the five wonderful precepts. And he has a particular way that he words them that extends the level of responsibility of each of them beyond beyond the, the simple phrase that we take when we chant the precepts at the beginning of the retreat. So for example, for the first precept, we we undertake the training to refrain from killing, harming living beings. And Thich Nhat Hanh extends that a bit. This is how he words that, the first of the precepts. It says, aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and to learn the ways of protecting the lives of people, animals, and plants. I determine not to kill not to let others kill and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. In the same book, he also speaks about the way that uh, sila and the meditation practices, the cultivation of concentration and the development of wisdom, how these have a circular and uh, cyclic relationship. And there's a way that they inform, they transform, and they refine and support one another. So as we develop our conduct, it allows for concentration, for the practice to develop more easily, more deeply. And out of this wisdom grows. And as wisdom becomes stronger and clearer, we make wiser decisions, we live with more clarity, our conduct becomes more refined, our concentration becomes deeper, our wisdom develops. And so they inform one another in a beautiful, way that encourages and supports each one to develop and deepen. And he equates the keeping of the precepts with metta in a very direct way. Here's a quote from the book. The five precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of keeping the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect each other. And if we think about the state of the world and if, if everyone in the world kept these precepts, it would be a radically different place in so many different ways. It would completely transform things. If even a bunch of people kept them it would have a huge impact on the way the world is. So there is a way, a very direct way that by living carefully, by keeping track and care and mindfulness of the way we live, of our conduct in the world, that it's a huge, a great gift of kindness. It's a great gift of metta for ourselves and for all beings. 
This first section also speaks a lot uh, about directly to the life of simplicity and renunciation that was practiced by the Buddha and his disciples, and it's still followed these days by monks and nuns. Uh, some of it speaks very directly to the life of, a, of an alms mendicant, as I spoke about uh, before with the, the monks going an alms round. But there are ways that this applies to our lives as well. In the sutta, it says one is contented and easy to support and without greed for supporters. This is very directly speaking to one who is relying on, on alms, food, and the support of others for their basic needs, their daily needs. It also says that one should be simple in living. And if we look at, at a movement towards more simplicity, greater simplicity, this is a kind of quality of care, of mindfulness with regards to how we live, how we use resources, for example. And this too can be a great act of kindness for ourselves and others. You know, as a species, we are kind of voracious in the way we live on the planet. We humans. We use so much of the world, the Earth's resources. We want it all for ourselves. We don't leave that much for other beings at times. There's this feeling of more, 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 and some of the systems that we live under that are based on this idea of continual growth, it's, there's no way it's ultimately sustainable. And while we're doing it, we're fouling the air and the water and turning some of the landscape into desert. And we wouldn't tolerate another species doing this you know, if squirrels were behaving the way we do, we would <laughs> we'd eradicate them as some kind of terrible pest. You know, we somehow set ourselves apart in this way. But there's a way that we can move in our hearts towards greater simplicity. I think one of the ways that we can do this is to ask ourselves in any moment, what do I really need right now to be happy and contented, to feel complete? Because we get so conditioned to think we need so much in order to be happy. You know, the whole world of commerce is based on convincing us that we're in a state of lack, that we don't have enough of whatever, of anything. And it can be so easy of us, for us to see what we, what we lack. But if we really take the time in any moment and, and reflect and say, well, what do I really need now? We often find that we don't need that much. And we can see that a, a simple life can be its own kind of blessing. It can bring its own kind of happiness and contentment and ease. So the middle part of the sutta 
and which forms the bulk of it, describes the, the practice of loving kindness to some extent and spends a lot of time des- describing the qualities of heart and mind that are both expressed and developed through the practice of goodwill and care. And it describes the inclusive, boundless, unconditional nature of metta. So it says, let them cultivate the thought, may all be well and secure, may all beings be happy, whatever living creatures there be, without exception. All the different kinds, huge and middle-sized ones, short and bulky ones, visible and invisible, near and far, those born and those not yet born, those waiting to be born. And in this section, there's the, the image of the mother with her child, this unconditional patient quality of metta. Let all embracing thoughts for beings be yours. And this boundless, unconditional, inclusive nature of metta for all beings throughout the cosmos in all its height and depth and breadth. And I think my favorite line in the whole verse, whole sutta, love that is untroubled uncomplicated, untroubled love, beyond hatred or enmity. And at the end of this this middle section, we're encouraged to infuse our lives with this quality at all times in all postures, when standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is awake. Pursue this awareness with all your might. In uh, 1998, yes, 11 years ago, right about this time of year, during this metta part of this retreat, um, Stephen and Michelle invited Sayada Ulakana to come. He's the abbot of the monastery at Chazwa Monastery in the Sagang Hills where we have the winter retreat uh, every January. And he's a, a beautiful being, has a lot of metta. So he came here and uh, I was called in to serve, look after him, cook for him and take care of him during his visit. It was his, it was his first trip to the West, I think. And we stayed down by the Gaston Pond in the houses that are down there where some of the teachers and staff live now. So it's a short walk, 20 minute walk or so down there. And uh, we used to walk up to, to IMS for times when he was going to be teaching, giving a talk or leading the sittings in the hall here. And I would walk along with him and he was, um, all along the way, I noticed he was speaking very softly and I listened and he was 
repeating metta phrases in Pali for any beings that we happen to pass along the way. Uh, people in cars who went by or you know, squirrels or chipmunks or birds. And then when we got closer up here, he would, he would notice anyone, any yogi who was out on the grounds, he would you know, turn towards them and, and was saying these metta phrases. Uh, softly, awera hontu, abhyapaja hontu, aniga hontu, sukhiyatanam pariharantu. May you be free of fear, may you be free of trouble, free of worry, may you live happily. Over and over for all the different people, this quality of having it there pervading his life whatever he was doing. It was a beautiful example of the way one can practice the metta. It's like, I guess Rebecca was describing airport metta in her talk last night. And at the very end of this part, this section, uh, metta is described as being uh, one of the divine abidings Brahma Vihara in Pali. And as many of you know, there are the four Brahma Viharas of metta, of loving kindness, of karuna, compassion, mudita, of empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. And we'll be talking about all of these in the next days, I, I'm sure. says, this is deemed the divine abiding here and now. So it points to this, uh, there's a kind of immediacy in this. That in any moment, if our hearts and our minds are suffused with this quality of love, with friendliness and care for ourselves and others, then in that moment, we truly are living in a kind of divine abode in a heavenly realm. When metta is really strong in our hearts, there's really nothing better. It is a divine abiding. And in that time when we're connected and suffused with this quality of heart, at that time we're at, we really are at ease and we're complete in that moment. It might not last, but the possibility is there. So it has that quality of immediacy. It's not so much something way out that eventually we might attain if we're lucky enough or work hard enough. That it's available here and now in moments throughout the day. We can touch this quality of a divine abiding And then the last, just the last uh, stanza in the sutta has a very different tone from the rest. And this part really points to the transcendent and potentially liberating aspect of the practice. And as well points to the fact that it is a practice of purification. So in this section, it refers to the pure hearted one who has clarity of vision, no longer clinging to or holding to wrong views. So in other words, one possessed of right view, one who lives in alignment with the truth of things as they really are, 
is not born again into this world. So it points to this transcendent possibility. And this really is the ultimate purpose of metta, is this quality of transcendental insight. Where we see that love and compassion are the expression of the deepest wisdom and understanding. I think sometimes when we undertake a practice like this, it can feel as though we're trying to get something or somehow discover something that exists outside of ourselves or creates something that's not already there. As though by doing this practice, repeating phrases or in whatever way we do the metta practice that we'll somehow be able to acquire or manifest something that we don't already have. But actually, we're not cultivating loving kindness in this way. We don't do it in this way. We highlight and we nurture qualities that already exists in our, in our own hearts and minds. Michelle used this image of shining a light, shining a, a flashlight around and we shine a light on our own inner goodness. We uncover this inner goodness. Sometimes it's a bit hidden. So sometimes we have to start by learning how to be our own friend, by befriending ourselves and rediscovering our own, our own inner beauty. This can be hard for, for us sometimes. I know for myself it was very difficult to feel that I had this kind of real inner goodness when I was first practicing and doing metta. I mentioned in some of the groups, one of my teachers suggested I put myself in the enemy category. Um, sometimes we might have to do that. But it's important that we really cultivate this quality for ourselves and we do, we do, under, we do un, uh, uncover our own inner goodness. And the Buddha said that one could search over the entire universe in all directions and not find anyone more deserving of love than we are ourselves. But it's, <coughs> it's rare for some of us at times that we actually hold ourselves in this way. I'm gonna read part of a poem that I know some of you are familiar with, but it's beautiful anyway. And it speaks very directly to this. It's called St. Francis and the Sow, and it's by Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I want to read a, a short uh, paragraph from 
a book uh, by Sharon Salzberg on loving kindness. It's quite a, a nice book. And it points to uh, the power that loving kindness and care connection can have in people's lives, can have a very powerful and, and enlivening effect. In this, uh, this a situation where there were some researchers who went to a, um, a nursing home for elderly people, and they gave half of the people, they gave everyone a plant, and they told half of the people that the plants were theirs to care for, that they had to water them and make sure they got enough sun and uh, fertilizer and that they had to respond to the needs of the plants and be careful to look after them and they told the other half that they sh the plants were theirs to enjoy but that the, the staff there at the facility would take care of them they didn't have any responsibility for these plants and so then at the end of the year they compared these two groups and the residents who had been asked to care for their plants were uh, living longer than the norm. They were healthier, more oriented towards and connected to their world. And the other residents who had plants but didn't have to care for them reflected the norms for people at their age in terms of their longevity and their health and alertness and engagement with the world. I think this study shows how powerful the potent effect that care and connection can have in, in our lives in very simple ways. And I think it also, one thing it also shows is how we tend to regard this kind of intimacy and this kind of love as a force between ourselves and, and another. Sometimes we rarely consider the possibility that we might discover this kind of intimacy within our own inner world, our own inner life. But with the cultivation of metta, that's what we do. We connect to our own inner goodness. And this becomes the ground and the basis for connecting to everything around us. And we see that just as, wish, as we wish to be happy, so too do all other beings, even those whose actions seem to indicate the opposite at times. And so there's this underlying unity of life that we can connect to through this shared desire for happiness. And even though it's not easy, it's significant that we do begin the practice of metta with ourselves, or at least make the occasional attempt as we practice more and more, because it is an essential foundation for being able to really offer this unconditional well-wishing to others And when we love ourselves, then we want to care for others because we see that it's the most nourishing and kind, enriching thing that we can do for ourselves. Loving kindness has this ability to soften the mind and the heart with feelings of benevolence. And so our minds, our hearts become more open and pliable and gentle and this becomes the ground for greater wisdom to arise. It's like that circle, this reinforcing cycle. We see what is skillful and useful and 
wholesome in our lives and what isn't. So we make wiser life choices and this leads to greater happiness and greater ease. And greater happiness and ease leads to greater wisdom. The Buddha praised metta quite highly in various ways. This, I like this one, it's from the Itivutaka. It has a lot of beautiful imagery. He said bhikkhus, he usually is speaking to the monks in these things, but it means all of us, practitioners, people, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, that means good deeds good things one might do in the world. Whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far excels them. Just as whatever light there is of stars, all is not worth one sixteenth part of the moon's light. In shining and beaming and radiance, the moon's light far excels it. And just as in the last month of the rainy period, in the autumn, when the heavens are clear, the sun as it climbs into the sky drives all darkness from the sky with its shining and beaming and radiance. And just as when night is turning to dawn, the morning star is shining and beaming and radiating, so too, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far excels them. Mm. So traditionally it's said that there are 11 benefits, blessings that accrue to one in whom loving kindness is well developed. I'm not gonna get through all of these maybe but I'll, I'll go through a few of them. It says that one sleeps easily in comfort. One wakes easily in comfort. And one has no bad dreams, no evil dreams. This is the description of the waking. Instead of waking uncomfortably, groaning and yawning and turning over as other people do, one wakes comfortably without contortions like a lotus opening Anybody waking that way? <laughs> See a show of hands. <laughs> the lotus opening, waking uppers. It's something we might aspire to. But we can see as we cultivate this quality of love and we live a life with a greater commitment to not harming and care for others and ourselves. And as the practice deepens, our lives will tend to become more simple and more clear in some ways. And, and through this, we, would fi we find that they have more freedom from fear, from guilt, from worry. And this extends into our sleeping and dreaming and waking. So that one is dear to humans and non-humans. And this points to the way that the energy that we extend into the world often is what returns to us. It, it tends to draw the same kind of energy back. So if we extend metta into the world, it tends to draw metta back to us. I think uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is, 
is a prime example of someone for whom this seems to be very true. People are so drawn to him. They don't, people who have no idea who he is seem to flock to him and want to be near him. He was once asked why so many people found him irresistible. <laughs> and this was his reply. I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated. But in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. I think people do like him for his good heart. <laughs> And when we develop this kind of heart of kindness and well-wishing that he exemplifies so beautifully, people feel, I think, on some cellular, le cellular level almost, that they can trust us. They know we won't harm them. And we can become a kind of beacon of trustworthiness, a safe haven in the world for people. next two benefits, Ooh, I'm running out of time, said that one is protected by the devas and that fire weapons and poisons will not harm one. <laughs> so we don't have to believe in devas and celestial beings to see how this practice can serve as a kind of protection and it's already been spoken about in, in different ways. And it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. You know, the changes life is going to give us all, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, pleasure and pain and gain and loss, the eight worldly conditions are beyond our control. But the, the quality of protection comes more from how we hold and relate to all that life brings us. And this is the key, how we relate to protection comes in our relationship to all that comes our way. The more that we can manifest love and care and kindness in the world, the more spaciousness and freedom we bring to life's events, good and bad. And this quality of spacious openness of heart and mind is really a great protection, allows us to hold these changes much more easily. Another benefit is said that one's face will be radiant and serene. I think this points to the way inner beauty often will shine forth in people's faces. It's not so much some more superficial beauty or handsomeness, but an inner beauty that comes through. Certainly when you see photos of the Dalai Lama, there's an inner beauty that comes through in his face. And I know all of us have met people. Michelle speaks of Deepama. I didn't have the good fortune to meet her, but 
people who knew her speak of her in this way, that there was an inner beauty that came through very clearly. And there are people that I love to see in Burma. It's worth it to me just to fly, to fly all halfway around the world, just to sit in the same room with some of these beings who have this kind of inner beauty that shines through. It's important that we keep in mind when we begin this kind of practice, when we undertake metta practice and throughout the time that we're practicing whatever kind of meditation, whether it's metta or vipassana, that these are practices of purification. And so at times we will experience a lot that doesn't feel at all like metta. A lot of things come up, everything comes up. And some of it can be rather painful and difficult to be with at times. And we have to be really careful and on guard that we don't judge ourselves or the practice when this happens. Rebecca used the image last night of this being a a way in which we can look at this practice that we're planting seeds And I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that that's what what we're doing here and we don't know when they're going to sprout. We're planting seeds by forming these powerful, beautiful intentions in our heart and mind. And they'll sprout and they'll bear fruit in their own time. We can't force them to grow. I think of the image of a flower bud. Maybe we have a, a flower that we've put in a vase and we want to see it open, but if we pull the petals open, we'll just destroy the flower. We can't make it open when we want it to happen. We have to let it open in its own time. So in this regard, it's important to be mindful of expectations we may have of how the practice should look or feel. There's a real letting go of expectations that is integral to this part, to the practice. And sometimes it's, the road can get a bit rough. There's some rough patches and some times of darkness and difficulty. But the important thing is that we're, that we're on the path. So I wanna end tonight with a poem that I really like that is a kind of metta poem. So you can receive this as metta phrases offered to you. This is uh, called the Initiation Song from the Finder's Lodge. And it's a poem by Ursula Le Guin. Please bring strange things Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. 
Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. So let's sit. We're already sitting quietly. Let's keep sitting quietly for a couple of minutes, and then I'll ring the bell. to read these last few lines again. They're so good. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. Thank you for your kind attention. The Meta Choir convenes at nine, <laughs> as usual. Please come if you're so inclined, and uh, we'll perfect. We'll work on our chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.